to me, I think being optimistic actually opens up more opportunities and, and doors. And so to me, positivity is, is a huge thing that, that you need to look for and to have fun at, at the end of the day as, as you kind of start pursuing your career. Oh, there he is. Hey, Dick. Hey, hey. hey how you doing? Good. Well, thank you for uh, having some time for us, man. We're actually really excited. We were just saying that um, you and Mark are probably the longest tenure Nike people that we've interviewed so far. Um, and, and it's awesome to say because you That's guys good. have such deep roots in history, you know? Yeah. No, I, uh, you know, just hit 36 years uh, right before I uh, retired with a bonus is, is, uh, what my financial planner told me to call it. And uh, so, yeah, I had a long <laughs> career. Basically the only company I've worked for outside of graduating from college. So, um, so you know, very lucky and honored and uh, had a great time. So, Yeah, I mean, I guess we could start because, like, we usually ask um, our guests, like, you know, when you went to the university, I mean, Oregon State, of course, what made you – what did you major in? Did you ever see yourself actually working in um, a brand like Nike, but also specifically in footwear? Um, and so we'd love to hear kind of your your history on that. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I grew up in Corvallis and um, my dad was a longtime professor at Oregon State. And so, um, you know, I think growing up in a small town like Corvallis, uh, you can get anywhere as a kid on your bike and like 10, 15 minutes. So, um, but, but you're in a major college town. So just getting exposed to high end athletics and athletes, uh, growing up, I, I just, uh, love sports. I played football, I played basketball and I ran track all through, all the way up through high school. And so, um, and, and and then I figured my best chance was to run track in college. I was six uh, four and and um, one eighty in high school, but one sixty five in college track. So I I thought my body's not gonna not gonna make it in football or or maybe even you know <laughs> high caliber college basketball. But track I have a a good shot. So uh, I ran at Oregon State. And um, funny little tidbit about that though is is. Uh, Oregon State hired Frank Morris as their head track coach. And Frank was actually the top assistant for Bill Dellinger down at U of O. So my recruiting from, from Frank Morris really started when I went to U of O on a, on a track visit. And Frank was my host, coach host, and took me around. And, you know, I was obviously loving Hayward Field and got to run there in high school and all that. And and then at the end of the the great visit uh, down in Eugene, he said, don't make any decisions. Give me 24 hours and I want to talk to you about something tomorrow. So he called me back the next day and just said he'd been hired as the head coach at Oregon State then. and was really excited to, to bring me on there. And so um, it took a little bit of a twist. I mean, I, you know, I was born and bred a beaver, but my mom and said she and she and my dad were appalled to think that I might become a duck. But uh, at the end of the day, I, <laughs> I chose Oregon State and I, you know, have friends for life and had a great uh, experience there at Oregon State running under Frank Morris. So, oh, wow. so that was, well, so, I will so, say, I will say don't hate on the duck so much. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, well, you know, my, my, uh, my, my PRs, to this day are still on at Hayward field on that track there. And so to have that really in your backyard and be able to run, whether it's a, a dual meet back then against Oregon or an invitational where we went to a lot of times or PAC 12 championships. And I mean, you know, to run down there and, and you guys know it. I mean, sure. A lot of the fans in the stands are duck fans, but they also just appreciate a good effort, a good performance. And so they're, they're, the fans in the stands there were always so appreciative of you working your tail off or having a great result there. So it, you know, it, it was the Mecca It is the Mecca. I'm excited to see what the new stadium looks like. Um, but uh, it, it was so fun to, to run uh, at Hayward field so many times. That's amazing. Um, yeah. During but, your but anyway, Oregon so, state times. Yeah. yeah. Just, what, what, what did I you was, major in? 
I majored in marketing, business marketing, and, and um, you know, I wore Nikes all through high school, so wore Astro Grabbers on the football field because we played at, at Parker Stadium in, in Corvallis there, uh, you know, wore the legend high in basketball, so I'm showing you how old I am now, and, and, uh, and then uh, wore the Vancouver's uh, as, my, as my track spike, and so I, I fell in love with Nike there, and um, and then just continued in college. And so when I ran track, luckily we were, we were sponsored by Nike and, and college at Oregon State. So we'd get some shoes and spikes there. And then I had a, I had a good kind of breakthrough junior year and, and um, in, in college and ran, had some big PRs. And so um, the, the Nike promo guy started um, sending product my way to, to train in training shoes and spikes and um you know sweats and all that kind of stuff and and back in those days you guys they it would be uh it would be an inline running shoe but they would um whether it was a factory or whether it was a promo guys they would show up in non-stock colorways so you might you might get a tailwind in the in the mail from these guys to train in but it wasn't an inline color it might have been a purple upper with a chartreuse swoosh and you know, blue midsole or something like that. And so it just, it just really like started getting myself and my teammates excited about what, what could you do with, with footwear? What could you do at, at a place like Nike where they're making these amazing shoes that help us, you know, break our PRs and run fast, but also just have the creative juices to, to really bring some excitement um, aesthetically and, with their designs and, and all that. So, <clears throat> so that kind of, that got kind of got me really hungry to try to, um, to try to get a job at Nike. And, and again, way back in those days, I, uh, graduated from Oregon state. I was doing odd jobs around Corvallis working for a realtor and stuff. And, um, I started trying to interview at, at Nike there and just to do whatever I could, like, like so many people just to do whatever you can to get your foot in the door and um found out later um so so i started looking in june july right after i graduated finally got hired in december um to get into the company store and just be a clerk in the company store but i, I was so excited to be able to do that and and i found out later one my mom we didn't have a we didn't even have a phone machine in those days so um i found out later my mom would never leave the house if my dad or I weren't there because she didn't want Nike to call and have nobody answer the phone. And so, uh, she would, she would always be around like in the afternoon if I was working and my dad was up on campus to make sure that she answered the phone if Nike called. And, and, um, and then there's a, a real telling point in October. So I'd been home for a while. I want to get out of there. And my dad one night at dinner said, Hey, if you could work for anybody in the world, who would you work for? And I said, man, dad, it, it would be Nike, man. I, I just, you know, if you can just let me live at home a little bit longer. And um, he never asked me again. I mean, he was like, that's cool. I'll, I'll, I'll let you pursue your dream a little bit longer. And and um, so I, I lived at home until I got the call to come work at the employee store. And uh, back then it was in the promo warehouse. So I think it's like 142nd Street in Beaverton there. So, but that was, that was heaven to me to, to get up there and get my foot in the door. Oh wow! I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're 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 actually like one of our our second guests, at least, who had talked about that the company store being kind of the initial sort of entry point into the company. So you're you're getting in the door. You're working in the store. How long did it take for you to kind of move to the next stage? Yeah, that's a good question because uh, back in those days, the store it's like. Um, it's a great place to to work, and um, one because you see employees walk through right every day to shop, and you don't know if someone walking in is a vice president, and and or you don't know if they're you know just another retail worker like you. And so, um, some of the people I worked with were more focused on getting their foot out the door and into something else at Nike than working at the store. And I think that that helped me. Um, just kind of move up eventually. So I was there about a little over five months and um, 
That's way back when they were closing Exeter, New Hampshire, and they were moving all the research facilities out to, to Beaverton. And so uh, the, the testing group uh, was moving out and there was one woman, uh, Miley Townsend, who was going to run testing for all of footwear. And so she, someone passed my name on. And so she called me and said, hey, are you interested in this? And I was like, yeah, fantastic test, getting the test shoes, uh, you know, get them out to testers for all the sports. And, and so um, that was my next job after the store was I went and worked in footwear testing and at the time it was mildly it was myself and it was an admin and that's that was the size of our department to test all new footwear uh at nike so that was crazy oh my gosh and would you say that was like your when you had that opportunity was that like when you caught the bug you could say almost in the sense is like okay i love doing footwear this is where i want to be um, or were you like, okay, I'm doing this until I can get to, let's say, the marketing function or um, whatever that may be within Nike? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think maybe it's maybe it's different now, but I, I think for some, you know, I graduated in marketing, but but at the same time, I didn't know exactly what that meant, and I didn't know what that meant at a company like Nike. You know, I wasn't interested in something like advertising back then, which was in-house and working with Whitney Kennedy. I loved it, but I, it is where I just started getting enamored with product and being able to work in testing where you get exposed to the, all the, the designers and developers and you're working with um, the product and you start learning how to take it apart and put it back together. And, you know, a lot of the footwear is a lot more simplistic back then, but it was still, it still had a story and a and a performance enhancement feature and all that, and so that's that's where I started to carve out my love and just said, "Hey, I, w- I want to stay in footwear." Um, my college roommate from Oregon State ended up getting a job um, in the apparel side, like on the, the scheduling and production side. Um, so so we would um, you know trade stories at night and all that, and we still ran together after college, but. I really fell in love with footwear and wanted to be uh, in, in shoes and, and keep going in, in footwear after that. Dick, at this time, you know, with the company's history, you know, it's it's kind of it's sort of its infancy, I guess, in, in relation to how long it's yeah. you know been a company. Um, but also a period of ex- um, tremendous growth, right? Oh, yeah. Kind of from the sort of mid to late 80s. Can you talk a little bit just about the energy? I'm always kind of just sort of dumbfounded by the amount of people that they had in some of these roles. It didn't seem like there was a lot of people just sort of like, you know, uh, keeping the lights on, but there was just so much tremendous growth within the company. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the energy that you were experiencing at that time? Yeah, I think the, um, you know, we, we, we were starting to, grow quite a bit but back then um you know you had you had some specialists like engineers and like designers and things but then you had a lot of people like myself or like other you know plms and marketing people and stuff like that 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 had some background but you kind of figured it out on the way though too and so um you you felt like a family you know you almost felt like you were an entrepreneur working in this in this company that was still pretty small at that point compared to, to what we are now or what Nike is now, but um, you felt like you were all kind of in it together. And, um, you know, when I moved into testing, we were in the building when we were over on Nimbus Avenue there, just kind of by Washington Square. And, um, you know, all the all the cubes, there were no cube walls back in those days. It was all open, open air. So it got a little noisy there, but you were out in the middle with everybody there were no um answering machines back then so if somebody's phone rang and they were in a meeting somebody else would get up out of their chair and go answer it and take a message and um you know it was typical that hey if i had a question i could go down to tinker's office and ask him a question about footwear and you know if he was there he'd, he'd take a moment and answer it for me so um it was like I say, you, you felt that sense of entrepreneurship, like, hey, we're going to get better and better. And we're also going to just things we don't know, we're going to figure out. We'll get different people putting their heads together and uh, figure out how to 
how to go to the next category or how to go to uh, make a better basketball shoe as we start uh, partnering with better factory partners over in Asia. And and again, back in those days too, I think maybe because you're a little bit smaller company, um, you had the visionaries that we all know, like Mark Parker and Sandy Bodecker and Tinker and all those people who, you know, would, would come up with the next and come up with, um, want to try something else. And so that's what made it fun for me in the beginning in, a, in an area like testing where, you know, I'm trying to just learn about basic footwear. And at the same time, they're bringing me down a shoe that just looks total whack to me. And I'm like, holy cow, what, you know, what's this all about? So um, it, it was a, it was a fun time to be there. And that included like when we started, <laughs> and it sounds so, sounds so basic now, but when we started doing visible air and, you know, just exposing the air bubble and, and um, that was just like, holy cow, you know, I mean, like the meetings I was in, to figure out the testing plans for that were just like, oh my gosh, you know, there's a lot riding on making this airbag, you know, exposed now and showing it through this little, through this little window in the, in the PU. So um, again, I, I couldn't help but wake up and be just super excited every day to, to go to work. Oh, I love that. And especially like how you said back then, like the energy was so, you know, entrepreneurial and everybody, you know, was like all hands, you know, together, you know, making sure everybody's, you know, doing this together. Um, and I'd love to kind of add on to that question that yeah. Jesse asked was, was like on the leadership perspective, how is the leadership um, built within like how you, when you were there to, um, till, till today, you know, and uh, as many years as you've been with Nike, like I obviously leadership has evolved, but how is the leadership um, during your tenure there? And where did you see like um, the changes and, and, you know, like you stated, the Sandys and the Mark Parkers and so forth, like in yourself, all getting up to that level to lead um, in, in your, your own teams as well? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think you know, Nike developed um, very dynamic leaders and um a lot of those people i you know I, I i i go back to um you know a lot of those those people a lot of those founders were competitive athletes and so they they wanted to win they knew how to budget their time and organize themselves they knew how to set goals and go after you know better things every time it's you know every time you finish a season you want to you want to get on to the next season and figure out how to improve that and and so, you know, if you look at some of the best leaders from Nike over time, whether it was way back in the mid 80s when I started to, um, you know, just recently, those those dynamic leaders, whether they're over 5000 people or whether over a, a 10 person team, um, kind of that communication and accessibility to them and and so that so that you feel like you're on the same page with them and and you know all those people would have fantastic ideas but also have also listen to okay so how are we going to solve this and and you kind of go through situations where you try things just like we do now so I, you know I, I think those traits that the early leaders had are are traits that are inherent to every every great leader as we move through the years and went through unbelievable growth and like i say you know there are a few hiccups along the way and because a lot of people were ex-competitive athletes they were still competitive you know and you figure it out whether it was reebok coming after us with the soft aerobic shoe or whether it was trying to overtake adidas um we we all like we all got on the same team and and we all like got after it to to, to beat who was in front of us so, Dick, you were talking about, you know, the Air Max and, you know, 1987, and that was kind of a critical point was sort of in the company's history, just in terms of like you kind of alluded to how much was writing on it at that point. Um, so can you take us just a little bit from your journey from the, the testing team and maybe, you know, after the development of that shoe and your role within that development of the testing program for that for that specific shoe as we kind of enter into the late 80s? Um, would love to kind of hear just sort of about your career trajectory and where you kind of headed from from that point. 
Yeah, I think um, so. So after testing, um, I was still trying to run competitively. And so um, Sandy Bodecker was actually my boss and he let me have some time off to train for the Olympic trials. This is back in 88. And so, um, you know, I had, had an amazing time at the trials and made it to the finals of the 1500 meters in the Olympic trials. And, and so coming off of that um, is when Sandy came to me and said, oh, okay, you've done the testing gig for a little while now. Let's, let's think about the next step and how about development. And so I moved into footwear development. And again, you know, because I had that big appetite to, to figure out how to, to how to make shoes and learn about shoes, I still in the back of my mind wanted to be a, a PLM, but knew I didn't have that experience yet and knew that anything I learned around making shoes uh, as a developer, because I'd be working with PLMs and be working with these great designers, uh, that that would help me get get to the PLM role eventually. So, so I was in development for a few years and um, got to work on the Jordan six and Jordan seven with Tinker. And, and so, you know, that's where I first started getting exposed to um, marketing people. Peter Rupi uh, took me on a trip to see Michael a couple times. And so, you know, if that, that doesn't get you excited to work in footwear, then, then it, it's crazy. So um, Peter was a great mentor to me. And so just kind of started kind of almost taking me under his wing and talking to me about what it takes to become a PLM and, and, um, and kind of got my creative juices going in terms of really looking at the consumer and the athlete and what do they want and and uh, what do they want from a performance standpoint? And then, you know, how do you work with designers to really bring the creative vision, the aesthetics uh, going forward? And and so I was in development for a few years and then got the opportunity. And the funny thing about that is um, I interviewed for the basketball PLM job and I got the tennis PLM job instead. So. I was like, what? I, you know, I, I hit the <laughs> tennis ball around and I, you know, I know tennis is a sport and, and all that. And I watch all the grand slams, but, <clears throat> but what about basketball? And they're like, well, we've got three people. Um, we want to put one person into basketball. We think you'd fit great into tennis. And we have the third person who will be a great PLM and, and kids. And so I was like, yeah, um, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I, you know, I, I can't wait. And it's, it's kind of one of my life's lessons when I do mentoring and things like that. Now I, I just tell people, you know, sometimes your career takes a little left turn and I said, embrace some of those jobs that maybe you don't think you want because the tennis PLM job was one of my favorite jobs of all time being at Nike all, you know, out of the whole 36 years I was there, I got exposed firsthand to, our best athletes, which back in those days were Andre Agassi and Jim Courier, who was number one in the world at the time, and then Pete Sampras after that, and Mary Jo Fernandez, and and um, so we, you know, those. It was a great um, first PLM role for me because you, one, don't take a lot of things for granted. You really, I, I think, it forced me to listen to the athletes more in terms of what they need and want in the shoes and. Um, and, and then tennis was a little bit smaller team too, with the promo team, with the, your factory partners over in Asia to kind of follow through on, on the dream. So, um, that's what I tell people, man. Sometimes if you think you want to go this way on your path and you get the opportunity to go a little different direction, embrace those because those, those jobs can turn out to be really great jobs and even bigger ways to grow than maybe if I'd become the basketball PLM back in that day. So, yeah, I totally agree. Especially like you said, you had, you had an opportunity to have a mentorship with Sandy, which I'm, I'm a big, obviously fan of Sandy as well, just because he was a mentor to me. Um, would love to know, like when you were, you know, doing tennis and then other opportunities came, what was like your most memorable um moment for you like the project that you were leading to like actually working with the athletes and gaining the perspectives and actually developing the shoe and, and say you know not just me but m my team and and the athlete we really did something here and made it really amazing yeah so uh i'm gonna give you two um because I was I was thinking about it and it's kind of it, I, I just can't split it up but one was when I was in tennis and we were working with some players and, you know, black toe because of the, all the sudden starts and stops 
uh, in tennis. T- tennis, you know, tennis is a sport that a lot of people think, oh, it's a nice um, kind of easygoing country club sport. But when you watch the world's best tennis players, one, they might be out there for five hours in a match, and two, there's so much starting and stopping and changing a direction and lateral plants and all that stuff that um, we noticed a lot of players were getting black toe. Uh, because their toes would jam into the end of the shoes. And so uh, we briefed this shoe called the Air Max Spa. And um, our whole deal was to reinforce it. Uh, on the outside, put put super plush comfort leathers on the outside. And then right next to that, put some good reinforcers to to, to provide the support that you need. We put Max Air underneath it. And then on the very inside, so next to the next to the uh, reinforcers, we put an extra line of almost like a thin foam padding so that one, if your toe did start to to slide and jam into the front of the shoe, that you'd be hitting a nice little piece of foam instead of uh, instead of just the the outer of the shoe. And so we were really excited about that um, because it was a an internal feature the one of the you know the biggest uh performance features was kind of internal and and you you didn't see it when you just saw the shoe on the shelf we thought we got to really sell this story to the sales team and and make sure that uh that they understand what it is and so going into the sales meeting down in florida we did a um we put together a little skit and we kind of called it the, the big toe skit and so Wilson Smith, our uh, designer, um, created this. He took one of those plastic dog kennels, you know, that you can put your your big dog in. And and he took that and he lined the whole outside of it with leather to make it look like the Air Max Spa. And then I was the PLM. And and so then I would, um, at the end of the pitch, I would put on this cone head mask and we had it painted like a big toe. And so I was the big toe. And so then, uh, and, and part of the moral here too is don't let your boss, who is Dave Larson, and don't let him talk you into all this stuff. But anyway, Dave would ask for a sales rep from the crowd, and he would always pick the biggest sales rep in the crowd. And they would come up, and I'd get on one of those little, uh, those little dollies that you lie on when you're like moving a piece of furniture. And I was a big toe, mm-hmm. and I would lie down on one of those things, and then. Dave Larson would tell the rep to slide me into the into that plastic kennel as hard as hard as they could. And all I had was that little cone head mask on. So it was like super hard on my head. And I was just crashing into this hard plastic. And um, the whole goal was, you know, the first part we had little little blood packets packed against the inside of the kennel. And so I'd come out and there'd be like blood on my on my big toe and toe head and uh you know and they'd say hey geez dick you know that's a common shoe and so then we'd take this plush piece of leather that wilson built to fit inside the kennel and we'd slide it in there and they'd wipe off my my big toe head and say okay now do it again and so then the person would would slide me in again and you know i'd come out and no blood on my toe and i'd say i'm okay i feel great and uh I didn't feel great though, because what happened is this sales meeting, we had to do it eight times a day for two days in a row. And after like about the first six, I said, Dave, man, I I think I'm getting a concussion when those people are jamming me in against that plastic. I said, you got to like pick either you got to do it and not hit me so hard, but I think I'm, I, I think I'm getting a concussion here. And so, uh, we kind of backed off a little bit, but it got the point across that, hey, here's this, you know, here's this nice plush inner lining on this beautiful shoe on the outside. And so you're going to feel great in it. And um, the shoe did what it was supposed to. So it was pretty cool. But uh, we, so we t- talked about that one and um, it was uh, took me a little while to recover from that. I think I had to go see a chiropractor for my neck when we got home from Florida there. But uh I, you know, I eventually got better, but, um, the, the other, the other one I wanted to talk about, um, was when I was in running and I was kind of like the CFL slash FPD for, for running and it's 96. So, um, the track and field team is working on the, the gold spike, the first gold spike for Michael Johnson. And, um, I think just the, 
the combination of getting an insight and then using that insight to you know make a better product and then building a, a, a great story that showcases it, but also tells a, a separate story. And then having an icon like Michael Johnson um, around that that whole project. So, you know, the year before 96, so 95 at the pre-classic, they filmed Michael Johnson and uh, Carl Lewis back then. And they were running the 200 against each other. They hardly ever met to race against each other, but, but they filmed it. Um, and you could see Michael Johnson was kind of known as the best curve runner in the world. And when you saw that slow motion film that the film team did, you could see how his foot and his leg literally on the turn came down completely. Like if, like if he's on the turn, it's hard, it's hard to describe over, over podcasts, but when he's on the turn, so you think his feet are going forward on the turn, his outer right leg was actually starting to actually land with the toe pointing to the straightaway down the straightaway and so it, it was amazing when people saw that and so the design team and engineers and development we were working with uh you know the innovation team at that point and they started making this asymmetrical plates for his right and left foot so that he could take advantage of his outer leg starting to plant and go towards the finish line to just enhance his, his great curve running. And um, so that was kind of the, the first step. And then the second step was Bob Lucas, our designer. His initial um, inspiration was a mirrored upper because he thought, hey, you know what? Michael's going for an unprecedented double in the 200 400 in Atlanta. And if I have a mirrored upper, as he's running that turn in the 200 and the 400, there's going to be you know, 60,000 cameras, flashes going off, taking pictures of Michael in the race. How cool would that be if it's a mirrored upper so that as people are taking pictures, it would almost make the spike disappear. So you wouldn't see the spike because it would just be reflecting light back. And so, you know, that, that, was, a that was a crazy inspiration. And um, we kept working with material vendors and it was getting into 96 and we couldn't quite get it right. And so, um, that's when the, the gold inspiration came up. And, you know, for, for Michael Johnson, it's pretty bold for anybody. And Michael's pretty humble, very confident, but pretty humble. And, and, and for him to say, you know, let's, let's do a gold upper to kind of put it out there. Like I, I'm, I'm going to win two golds and that's the goal. And you know, that, that was, um, I don't want to say a, a, a bad term, but that was pretty gutsy back in those days. And, and so that was, that was a huge statement around just the look of the shoe and then the performance of the shoe. Um, and then the, and then the final little tidbit, you know, at the Olympic trial. So Olympics are in Atlanta. So our U S Olympic trials were in Atlanta that year to get our U S athletes ready for the track. And, um, we were, I remember we were there at the trials and we're watching Michael and, Part of the thing that made the spike so great, too, was just the reduction in weight. And so because the team had used a very thin piece of phylon um, to go from the from the spike plate back and, and around the heel and cut the heel. And so um, phylon super lightweight and that's all you need. You know, you're not hitting the ground a lot in your heel, but you are a little bit. Well, Phylon doesn't have a lot of traction. And so I remember sitting in the stands waiting for the 400 to come on. And the announcer keeps talking about there's a thunderstorm coming towards, you know, the stadium. We hope we don't have to postpone the, the meet, but we're going to stay on. There's a thunderstorm coming in the next hour. And then he's like, there's a thunderstorm coming this way in the next half hour. Be ready to move under the stands. And we're looking at each other thinking crap, if this track is soaking wet, is Michael going to slip? And if he slips, and if you don't finish in the top three, you know, at the trials and you don't make the U.S. Olympic team, it's it, it's all or nothing back then. So we were a little nervous. There's, you know, there's a, there was a design on the bottom of the phylon to actually add some traction, but there wasn't a piece of rubber because it was heavy. We didn't want to put rubber on it to, to add additional traction. So we were nervous as heck and, and long story short, you know, the, the, the storm moved a different direction and didn't hit the stadium and Michael smoked the 400 and qualified in both. And then, um, 
I was fortunate enough to see him in Atlanta where he broke the world record in the 200 and won the 400 too. So again, it's just like, you know, it's the, it's the Nike way when you can innovate to enhance performance, build a great design and aesthetics to go with it and be able to story tell an authentic story around it. It's just like, it's no pun intended, but gold, you know? So those are amazing (laughs) stories. Um, I just we, we kind of covered this in our conversation with with knock um, just around, you know, being in tennis and, and having that be a sport that was kind of personal to yeah. fill. And with your experience within te- within tennis and then um, within running, obviously, both very close to Phil's heart, as well as Mark's eventually. I'm curious, like, how much involvement did Phil and, and potentially Mark later on uh, in your career have and the work that you guys were doing, were they pretty engaged in that in the products that you guys were developing or what was that process like for you? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know what, they were, um, they were, they were super engaging without being, um, you know, they, they didn't, uh, come in and want to know all the details all the time. They, they didn't like, you never felt like they were standing over your shoulder. You just felt like it, it actually would inspire us to know that we got the world's best athletes. We've got, Phil Knight and Mark Parker, who are the you know world's best product people, and we want to be able to make shoes that that help these people. And so you you um, you had uh, you had them very interested. And um, again, like you said, tennis. Like, like back in the day when I was a tennis PLM, I was in the McEnroe Building, and that's where you know Phil's office was for many years. And so I had to be ready to if i saw phil in the hallway he would bump in and say hey how's courier doing so i always had to have the days you know if there's a major tournament going on i always had to have the up-to-date results so if i saw phil and he asked me like hey you know where's agassi his match started at 10 i'm like oh he you know won the first set and he's down 2-0 <laughs> in the second you know I, I you know and so you're just like man i gotta be you know you kind of didn't want to see him but you wanted to see him at the same time so um so it, but, but it was, it was great having them on board and a, a little, another little story about um, Phil. So when we first signed Pete Sampras, um, we were all down at the, uh, it was a Lipton tennis tournament down in Miami and Key Biscayne and Wilson Smith and I were rooming together. And so we went down and the promo team had a, uh, rented a house uh, pretty close to the to the tennis grounds there. And so we went there the first night we landed for a barbecue and we just thought it was um, the promo team and some of the retail people and stuff down there. So we went flying and, you know, we went yelling into the house and all that. And Phil was there too, because he came down to watch a couple days of the tournament. And so um, we're just chatting with Phil and saying hi and all that kind of stuff. And then about half an hour later, Wilson and I are in the one room in the house where there's a TV and we were watching, I think, an NBA game. And there's only Wilson and I in there. And Phil walks in and he looks at us and he says, if you guys F up that Pete Samper shoe, says, I've been talking to my friends in China and they have a new liquid castration fluid that i'm gonna use on both of you and that's always and that's all he said and he walked out of the room and i and i looked at wilson and you guys know wilson so i looked at wilson and i was like he's got to be kidding right i mean he kept a straight face i said he's got to be kidding right well wilson didn't sleep that whole night he was so freaking nervous i mean he was he was pacing in the room you know 3 a.m in the morning later i'm like wilson go to bed he's like no we gotta get the shoe right man so uh, it was it was a good move by Phil to like keep us on our toes, man. Oh, I love that story. <laughs> I mean, obviously Wilson's a well-known developer as well, so I, it's awesome to hear both your guys' story, especially with Phil. You know, yeah. kind of like I f- I feel like he's joking, but again, he's with a straight face, and you yeah. guys were probably like, "Oh God, we got to get this right." So that's amazing. Um, <laughs> I, I would love to ask you. Um, Kind of a question in regards to, uh, so there's a lot of people out there these days, like the, the, the shoe surgeon to other artists that are really focused on like breaking apart um, Nike or Adidas shoes or any shoes in general and kind of making it their own. Um, do you think that's something that 
is is continuing to trend in your experience but also like do you see that kind of like an opportunity for Nike to being like that guy or that girl has talent we should really consider having them on board since they're doing that kind of stuff oh yeah definitely i mean you know I, design like it like everything like all of our jobs like like retail like product i mean it continues to evolve and this design has evolved um you know and continues to evolve and so I, I think 10 years ago you know there was a little bit of when you'd walk the halls at nike you know there'd be those little passive aggressive meetings and if if your team didn't invent it if your team didn't come up with it then you didn't support it kind of deal you know and now there's there's so many creative talented people as they get exposed to what whatever type of medium growing up and 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 just their curiosity too that um you know when they see what used to be a finished shoe maybe and start taking it apart and putting their own twist on it and and a new material and a new story around it and um you just you just kind of like it it could be crazy and and that's probably you know, it could be, I think it's a trend that we'll see continue and, and the twist on it for us, I think is that, um, you know, instead of moving off a shoe, instead of creating a shoe and then moving off it six months later and creating a whole new shoe, you know, even if it's something called the Pegasus, or even if it's something called, you know, something that we do over and over again, um, I, I think those lifestyles, those lifespans might be a, a little bit longer now because people are going to take the time to say, hey, you know what, that was a great shoe, but the midsole was too soft. And so people are going to put some twist on the midsole to make it a little better and keep it in the line longer and then add to the cosmetics to give that a twist. And so I think that I, I think we're not going to be completely starting over in the design world like maybe we were 10 or 15 years ago. Now, now we're going to be evolving these projects and and they'll come out with a totally fresh eye and fresh look and they'll feel better, too. So um, I, I think it's a I think it's an exciting time. And, and, you know, with waste and sustainability and all that, to know that you don't have to start over with new molds and new midsoles and outsoles and uppers all the time and and you can take what's existing and make it fun and make it better uh that's kind of where we have to go i think hmm. i love that yeah it's pretty interesting like you know i think i was definitely a purist during my time at nike and when we started doing shoes with the swoosh going different directions or coming off the bottom of the shoe it took me a little while to kind of get used to it but i think to your point it's like this is just another generation's designer taking this forward, you know? And I think that the integrity of the brand mm -hmm. and the logo is still there. It's just an opportunity to, you know, showcase this product for a new audience, which I think, you know, brands like Nike have to do just to, to stay on top of trends and to move forward. So um, I'm begrudgingly going along with all that stuff. It's taken me a while to come to terms with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're all purists. You, you don't want to take away the original you know, design and the original um, team that put that amazing shoe together. But I think, yeah, I think there's going to be future spins on all that stuff. And you, you guys remember, I mean, back in the day, you couldn't do anything to the swoosh. Trademark police would be all over you. You know, if you put it backwards, couldn't do that. If you didn't have it tail off, if you made it a never ending and put an overlay over the back of the swoosh so that it melded into the other side, then that was a no-no. I mean, there were so many you know, you couldn't make it um, performance enhancing, meaning you couldn't make the swoosh reflective for years or, you know, have some type of performance feature. And so it's like, holy cow. And now you can do whatever you want to the swoosh almost. So, um, so yeah, I'm a little bit of a purist there, but it's, I think reality is we're, we're, we're moving to a new world yeah. though. Um, Dick, I would love to just kind of hear, you know, sort of as we sort of like, you know, kind of enter into the, the, the 2020s, the, the, you know, the, the 2000s, like in terms of your career scope and your arc, at what point did you start thinking, you know, Hey, I'm, you know, maybe this is kind of a time for me to start, you know, thinking about retirement and, you know, how was that, that process of evaluation for you personally, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah. Well, I, I think um, 
I think Nike Nike is the type of company that can consume you know totally consume you <laughs> for me totally consume me in a good way. My wife would have a different opinion sometimes, you know, in terms of how much it consumed me. But, um, you know, and, and Bob Wood, who was a longtime VP at Nike, you know, he said Nike is a jealous God. And by that, he meant that, you know, Nike demands a lot of your time and the rewards are great, but it demands a lot of your time. And so I think as I started thinking about retirement, one, um, you kind of lift up your head and you're like, holy cow, there's a whole nother world out there, you know? And so. I, I think what you learn at Nike and the confidence it gives you, the ability to do things, um, you know, to the highest degree possible. I, I think when when we all work at Nike, we have higher expectations of ourselves, and and um, you know, we 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 don't want to just get it done. We want to do it the the best that we can. And I think all those kind of traits and talents, as you start looking outward and and seeing what else is out there um that's when i kind of started to think boy now, now i'm lifting my head and kind of opening my aperture up and there's a lot of other things to do out there and for for me personally i never thought about um and we could do a whole segment on on you know loyalty and some of those kind of words but i i never thought about going to adidas or going to under armor <clears throat> I, I i don't you know to this day i don't want to go to another footwear company and and try to do what i was doing here at nike for so many years i i think instead you, you take those talents and things you learn and for me like right now i'm president of an athlete student athlete board at osu and so i, I spend a lot of time on how do you help current student athletes at oregon state how do you help alumni re-engage and reignite the relationship with Oregon State and you know so I, I think I started thinking about there's a whole bunch of things out there that um, would be fun to do and fun to tackle and, and until for me until I really retired from Nike you know I, I really wouldn't give those a lot of serious thought or enough thought now I'm now I have the freedom to do that so um that's a good thing, and then and, and then on the and then on the family side, I mean, I have I have a thirty year old son um, who's married and lives in the area here, and a and a twenty five year old daughter who's um, lives in the area here, and so getting to see them a lot more. And I have two little granddaughters, a three year old and a one year old, and you know they just they get me as excited as a new shoe now. So have, getting to spend time with them too, and more time with family. You just, you know, and of course, of course, they are totally decked out. They came over for um, a meal last night and my three-year-old granddaughter, Amelia, had um, Jordans on, Nike sweatpants, but then a sequined skirt on. And it was like, you, you are looking great, man. That's exactly the way you should be, man. That's <laughs> awesome. Hey, Dick, um, we usually ask our guests this uh, question, but, you know, the, our listeners who are um, just coming out of college or looking into getting into a new field, um, what kind of advice could you give them in regards to getting into a brand like Nike or a bigger CPG company? Yeah. Uh, I think following your passion is is great. For, for me, one of the first questions I ask, um, some of the student athletes I mentor is, you know, when you say you love shoes, what, what does that mean to you? Cause you'll meet with a lot of kids who say, ah, you know, I want to design shoes for Nike or I want to, you know, do this for Nike. And it's like, that's, it's cool to love shoes, but kind of figure out what you want to do. Some kids I talked to after I talked to them for a little while, they're like, Oh, I, I actually want to work for Nike, but I want to work in sales. Cause I'd rather, you know, be talking to customers and selling the shoes or, or they're like, hey, I want to be in brand, or and 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 so a lot of people that first come to me and say I, I want to be in product, I think they are enamored with you know what the possibilities are. But some really figure that out, and some are like, oh, okay. After we talk for a little while, I, I actually want to be in a a different a different part of the company there. So um, you know, to to me, it goes back to talk to people, ask a lot of questions because you you still don't know what a lot of these jobs or companies mean when you're in college, especially if you're a student athlete and you're, you're locked into 
working out and competing and going to school at the same time. Um, I tell them all, you know, if you don't have certain experiences, you've got a lot of experience already just by managing your time well with, with your athletics and with your school, you know, and, and, um, building the right type of values and all those kinds of things. So you're actually very attractive to a lot of companies, Nike included. So, um, so that's good. And, and, you know, like we talked earlier, I said, have a plan, but don't be afraid to jump off that plan and take a left turn. You, you might see, you might, you might see a, a job at a different company in the beginning and you're like, that's, that would be really cool and go do that. And then that sets you up to, come into Nike or come into something else that you want to do after that, because it, it kind of gives you that experience and helps you kind of figure out, figure out what you want to do. And, and, um, and then the last thing I say is have fun man. life is life. is too short. So work hard. And, and I think, you know, I think some people might conflict or, or think that having fun and working hard are, are on the opposite ends of the spectrum. And I, I think, we have enough uh, great examples. You've talked to a lot of them on your podcast here that showed that you can have a lot of fun and work your tail off and it makes you better. It makes your team better. You, uh, to me, I think being optimistic actually opens up more opportunities and, and doors. And so to me, positivity is is a huge thing that, that you need to look for and to have fun at, at the end of the day as, as you kind of start pursuing your career. Hey, Dick, we definitely have to have you come back and tell us more stories. Yeah, that'd be fun. And, and, you know, I was just was going to mention, I, I'm just reading the, the new Jim Gray book. I'm reading a bunch of books, but the Jim Gray book about talking to goats or something like that. And he, he mentioned uh, Mark Tomashow in there in his Tiger Woods chapter. Just about working with Mark Thomas show through Nike ads. And I guess, and I guess Jim Gray owned a piece of film. I don't know if he talked if Mark talked about this in one of the podcasts, but, and he said, Mark Thomas show was one of the best gentlemen that he's ever worked with in the professional world or something like that. So I was like, shout out to Mark there. Well, shout out to you, Dick. Um, when you're talking about positivity, man, we crossed paths, you know, mostly because of my uh, NCAA basketball pool, probably, That's right. you know, we're always <laughs> getting getting your money, getting your money in my pool. But um, yeah, you're always just a, a, a really great guy to work with and love chatting with you over the years. And so um, really appreciate you being on with us and, and taking us on your journey. You thank you so much. For no, your time. Thank you. It's been it's been fun. It's been fun. I appreciate you guys.